From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. On today's show, we explore the themes of love and marriage with original five-minute essays from writers Margarita Meyendorf, Honor Finnegan, and Kathy Curto. I noticed Mickey standing at the express counter at the Grand Union in Kingston, New York. He was very handsome. I married into money, literally. That was the family name. The kids were one, three, five, and six. We had no business going away with them in tow, but we were trying to stay sane and in love, so we went anyway. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer Marie Prohler-Houston shares an experience in pitching and publishing her work. I wrote a story for my three-year-old son who loved to dance. I called it Brooklyn Boogie and sent it to the children's division at a publishing house where I already had a connection. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Poets and singers and writers of all types have been writing about love for millennia. In this century, the novelist and essayist Ursula Le Guin wrote, Love doesn't just sit there like a stone. It has to be made like bread, remade all the time, made new. For today's show, we've selected three stories from our love and marriage event that we presented on stage at Sarah Lawrence College in New York's Westchester County. And we begin with Margarita Meyendorf. Better known as Morka to her friends, Margarita Meyendorf has performed as an actress, dancer, musician, and storyteller at venues throughout the United States and in Europe. Here's Morka performing for a full house at Sarah Lawrence College reading North Cape May. I noticed Mickey standing at the express counter at the Grand Union in Kingston, New York. He was very handsome. I knew he was Hungarian because we had previously met through my Bulgarian then boyfriend. Mickey and I spoke. I couldn't help but notice his low, sexy, baritone voice. I told Mickey that I would be singing with a Russian ensemble and that I'd hoped he'd attend the show. He gave me his phone number. Who could know that this little exchange would lead to a grand union, a blissful marriage of 20 years? In 1997, when our romance began, we were broke. I was out of work and launching my one-woman show in New York City, and Mickey worked three jobs, an engineer for Ulster County, a taxi driver for Kingston Cabs, and a vegetable cutter for a Chinese restaurant. He was putting his daughter and son through Bard College, and was in debt up to his ears. That July... Mickey and I decided to go camping in North Cape May, New Jersey, an inexpensive way to enjoy the sandy beaches and warm waters of the Jersey Shore. We invested in a spacious tent that could sleep four. We would have none of the tiny claustrophobic tents. We bought a queen-sized air mattress and a pump to make it expand to a luxurious feeling bed. We brought food, pans, and utensils to cook outdoors, wood for the fire, and several bottles of wine. We packed, hung the bicycles on the bike rack, and set off for the five-hour trip to Cold Spring, K. 
campground. It was hot, well over 90 degrees. We arrived at the campsite early enough to bike to the closest beach, a narrow path through thick woods hanging with wild roses and honeysuckles led us to Higby Beach on the Delaware Bay. To our surprise, we were greeted by a massive voodoo sign crisscrossed on two timbers and a group of suntan smiling naked people who welcomed us to the nude beach and encouraged us to take off our clothes, which we did. So much for a Victorian Cape May and the conservative state of New Jersey. We swam naked in the warm, murky waters of the bay, frolicked on the beach, and watched as the Cape May Lewis Ferry headed out towards Delaware and disappeared in the mist. The sun was setting when we got dressed and biked to our campsite. We opened up a bottle of wine as we pitched the tent, inflated the mattress, and started the fire to make dinner. We opened up the second bottle of wine, as I scrubbed the potatoes, wrapped them in tin foil, and threw them onto the coals. I made salad, and Mickey prepared the chicken. He placed the chicken into the frying pan and let it sizzle. As we gobbled up the salad, we were famished, and not a little tipsy from the wine. We heard a kind of a popping, squeaky sound coming from the frying pan as bubbles started to form around the pieces of chicken. In our inebriated state, we thought we were hallucinating as the bubbles grew bigger and bigger and the chicken seemed to come to life as it rose as if by magic from the pan. But then we noticed that the chicken had an odd scent, similar to soap. It was soap. I had mistaken the dish soap for olive oil when I started to fry the chicken. <laughs> Without hesitation, Mickey lifted the chicken out of the frying pan, placed it into a sieve, then washed it under the faucet. We then finished frying it in olive oil. A bit fragrant, but otherwise delicious. Throughout the dinner, we laughed and laughed as we stumbled into our bed. The next morning, we were still laughing as we passed gas that was pungent with perfume detergent. It didn't matter. We felt effervescent in every sense. We were in love. Everything was possible. <laughs> Margarita Meyendorf was born displaced in a refugee camp in Germany, and she's the author of the memoir DP, Displaced Person. She's also recently published an anthology of short stories based on her life's adventures. That book is called Flipping the Bird. Honor Finnegan grew up on the south side of Chicago, and she's been singing, performing, and telling stories since she was in the first national tour of Annie at the age of 11. As a young adult, she performed at the Improv Olympic, Chicago's premier venue for improvisational comedy. And for a time, she was also a busker in Ireland, singing on the streets of Galway. A gig of sorts that led to a fateful meeting, a marriage, and motherhood. Here's Honor Finnegan on stage before a full house at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York, reading 
money. I married into money, literally. That was the family name. They were English, from Southampton, the city that launched the Titanic. I first became aware of his name in print. It was a letter addressed to Mr. Money. I thought it was a joke. Mr. Money was a penny-pinching fiscal neurotic who had a lot of anxiety about money. He was always very concerned that everything be 50-50, and so for nearly 20 years of marriage, we had separate bank accounts. I met Mr. Money in Ireland at Monroe's Tavern in Galway City, across the street from the Archview Hostel. He played guitar in a blues band. I asked if I could get up and sing. The front man said yes. Mr. Money said no. The front man won. I was small, quiet, and unassuming until I hit the stage. I stood in front of that packed pub, tapped out the tempo to the band, and sang Wild Women Don't Have the Blues by Ida Cox. I've got a disposition and a way of my own. When my man starts kicking, I let him find another home. I tore it up, brought the house down, standing ovation. They never saw it coming, including Mr. Money. I walked up the stage and straight out the door. It was a dramatic exit. I was really just tired, and I wanted to get to bed. The next morning, Mr. Money came looking for me. He wanted to start a new blues band. I wanted to sing Irish music, but I went with it. A gig's a gig, and it beat working at the hostel. The Irish love the blues, and a pub owner picked the name, the Honorary Blues Band. Mr. Money was very pretty, a delicate Mick Jagger in a gray leather jacket. We brought out the worst in each other and fought from day one. One night, we had a situation that required morning-after medication. He said he would pay for half. It had to be 50-50. The drug was nauseating, his stance infuriating. I flew into a rage, and that set the stage for the tone of our relationship. We got pregnant later. It was a mutual, intentional accident. He wanted to be a father. I wanted to be a mother. We both wanted to play music. We thought we'd make a go of it. So, Mr. Money and me were married in the last trimester, splitting the cost of the license 50-50. The money-in-laws came over. They referred, <laughs> they referred to England as the mainland. They made my Irish root shudder. I made their stiff upper lips quiver. I kept my name Finnegan, and we all kept our distance. Mr. Money and I moved to New York City and raised our baby. Our first neighborhood was Bay Ridge in Brooklyn, where I waited tables at a diner. While Mr. Money lived off his separate savings, I saved receipts for household items to prove I was pulling my weight 50-50. We won a housing lottery and moved to Chelsea. Our baby went to elementary school, middle school, and high school. Then our baby went to college. And the apartment was empty. Just me and Mr. Money living 50-50. It turns out that two halves do not a whole make. The divorce was uncontested. It cost $500. That was $250 each. Honor Finnegan is a preschool educator, special educator, a heartfulness meditation trainer, and the mother of one adult son. 
She's won many accolades for songwriting and for performing folk music, and was asked to share the Moth mainstage with Elizabeth Gilbert. She's appeared several times on our Read 650 stage, and we're always delighted to welcome her back. Kathy Curdo was a young mom with four young children approaching the end of her rope when she and her husband decided to book a restorative getaway at a mountaintop lodge with those four young children in tow. Kathy's contribution to our Love and Marriage show is this piece that she read for the audience. It's called What He Knew. The kids were one, three, five, and six. We had no business going away with them in tow, but we were trying to stay sane and in love, so we went anyway. I wanted no laundry and a meal I didn't cook. My husband, Peppy, wanted a break from work. And the kids just wanted to take turns pushing an elevator button. I booked a place, Mountaintop Lodge, about 90 minutes away with a room that fit us all. I didn't ask about dress codes. I didn't ask about dinner seatings. I didn't ask about what I now know are defined as additional charges. <laughs> In the lobby, we were greeted with an onslaught of pastel sweater sets and loafers. Lots and lots of loafers. My faded jean jacket, clearly the wrong call. All eyes were on the jacket and my son, Sam. His Buzz Lightyear pajamas smelled sour, and Buzz's face was stained with a blob of Yoo-Hoo. Hushed remarks about the girls, too, were likely, with their uneven ponytails and stick-on fake fingernail tips in neon colors. I thought we were coming to a lodge. To me, lodge meant jeans, hot dogs, and s'mores, not pressed khakis, beef wellington, and afternoon tea or cocktails mixed in silver shakers and stirred with imported crystal. One or two keys, sir, Audrey, the reservation specialist, asked Peppy. Two's good, he answered, and signed the card that allowed us to charge our every move. Because in addition to looking nothing like a lodge, it also didn't match my idea of what a lodge might cost. No cherries in the Shirley Temples for us. We got through dinner probably because we employed Operation If You Behave as a means of survival. The kids wanted to play afterwards, so we rolled out our favorite strategy, leverage. Earlier, Audrey told us about what she called the magnificent game room. And for your little princesses, she said, we have spectacular costumes. Audrey winked, too, but looked away when she noticed two of our three princesses were picking their noses. <laughs> so after dinner, we went to the game room where they played dress-up and Cinderella pinball. There was even a make-your-own cotton candy machine, which is just what their already inappropriate outfits didn't need. We were done. But as we walked out, we noticed a dim back room, inside a pool table. When was the last time you played pool, Peppy asked. College, I think, I said realizing what that meant. We'd never played together. How about one game, he nudged. The kids were tired and sticky, but some higher power pulled them onto the fancy leather couch next to the pool table. They curled up into one another and squealed. No, let me watch you, I said, and sat on a stool in the corner next to the sticks and chalk and ball wax. I had forgotten something about myself but when he reached for the cue stick, I remembered. There's a slow, smooth, deliberate manner of leaning that must happen to play pool well. He knew about that. 
then there are the ways that hands and fingers and legs must work to play the game. He knew that too. There are sounds, the cracks and echoes that arouse, thrill, and startle, the breaks, the stunts, and the tricks. There's the jukebox, and there's muddy waters. There are the eyes, how they watch, deepen, and consider, and the way they shift up just before the shot, maybe to see who's watching. He looked up at me and let his cue slide forward. My eyes dwelled on his for a handful of seconds, and then an epiphany. I may not have gotten off the stool, but we were both playing this game. I gazed from him to the kids who were tangled up and almost asleep on Mountaintop's fancy leather couch. I watched him some more, and there, in my faded jean jacket, I was shaken and stirred. Kathy Curdo teaches at the Reining Institute at Sarah Lawrence College and at Montclair State University, and she serves on the faculty of the Joe Papelio Writers' Workshop in Cetera, Italy. She's the author of Not For Nothing, Glimpses Into a Jersey Girlhood, published by Bordighera Press. Her work has been featured on NPR in the essay collection Listen to Your Mother, What She Said Then, What We're Saying Now, and in the New York Times, among others. Kathy's four children are now mostly grown and flown, and she and her husband live in Cold Spring, New York. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati-Mayer. Our announcer is Fran Tuno, and we simply could not bring you this show each week without the generous assistance of Jim Russick and Sarah Caldwell. If you like this show and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on episodes you may have missed, like Immigration Nation or Tales of New York, and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you every Wednesday, along with an order of General Chow's chicken and shrimp fried rice. Coming up right after the break, it's Marie Proler Houston with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from the Writing Institute at Sarah Lawrence College. Enroll in a non-credit workshop where everyone, from the novice to seasoned writers, from preteens to retirees, can find a class to explore their talents and bring their inner writer to life. The Writing Institute helps writers in every genre to grow, welcoming them into a supportive community of better thinkers, better listeners, and better writers. Learn more. Visit sarahlawrence.edu slash writinginstitute. Marie Proler Houston is a longtime freelance writer who understands the world of publishing better than the average person, but that doesn't necessarily give her a leg up when trying to find a home for her own work. In this edition of Between the Lines, Marie shares her experience of trying to transform her ideas into published books. Back in 2006, on the cusp of Brooklyn, New York, becoming a global brand, I wrote a story for my three-year-old son who loved to dance. I called it Brooklyn Boogie and sent it to the children's division at a publishing house where I already had a connection. They were interested, but felt the title would lack national appeal. Eager to have my first children's book published, I agreed to rename it and came up with the All-American Jump and Jive Jig. Flash forward to 2017, Brooklyn style, 
beards, thick-rimmed glasses, exposed brick, and artisanal everything, had become recognizable around the world. I happened upon the website of a wedding photographer based in Williamsburg, whose work was edgy, romantic, and beautifully composed. Each event she captured was filled with unconventional touches that could be easily replicated. In a nutshell, it was a book waiting to happen, or so I thought. I reached out to the photographer, who kindly gave me the green light to create a proposal using her images. I interviewed one of her couples for a sample chapter. Their nuptials had been on the rooftop of a favorite neighborhood bistro, and in place of a traditional tiered wedding cake, they had a pie contest with entries baked by their guests. An agent pitched Brooklyn Weddings to all the big lifestyle book publishers. Several editors loved the concept, including one who lived in Brooklyn, but every sales department felt it was too niche and ultimately passed. Brooklyn's moment in the spotlight, it seemed, had also passed. Should I have held firm and shopped Brooklyn Boogie around to other publishers? Probably. Should I have realized that Brooklyn's cachet was ebbing and instead chosen a more generic title for Brooklyn Weddings, maybe Urban Weddings? I believe that would have made a difference. Every trend has a curve, and it's imperative for writers to know where on that curve their topic of interest falls. In publishing, as in life, timing is everything. Marie Perler Houston's work has appeared in O, Town and Country, Art and Antiques, Country Living, and elsewhere. She's the author of six decorating books, as well as two children's books, The All-American Jump and Jive Jig and Christmas Eve with Mrs. Claus. She's blogged about home improvement topics for BobVila.com and about the fun and frustrating moments of parenthood for NickMom.com. Born and raised on Staten Island, Marie now lives on the other side of the Narrows in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn, with her husband, son, and daughter. Do you have some thoughts to share on writing and the writing life? Send us your Between the Lines essay between 400 and 650 words. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, where you'll also find open submission calls for our upcoming shows. If you've written a review on Apple Podcasts, thank you. If you haven't, now's a great time to do so. It really helps us and helps other people find the show. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Margarita Meyendorf, Honor Finnegan, Kathy Curto, and Marie Proley Houston. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.